Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Friday series with James Jordan and the book of Haggai. And here he's going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, take a look at our Theopolis app. You can download that app from your app store, create an account, and you'll have access to all kinds of free content. And on the other side of the small paywall, you can find hundreds and hundreds of lectures, dozens of ebooks, and much more. So to take a look at that app, there's a link down there in the show notes, or you can head over to your app store and download it from there. With that, we hope that you are sharpened and helped by this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan, teaching in the book of Haggai. Thank you for the opportunity of studying your word. We thank you that you've written it for us and given it to us. We ask that in this hour, as we approach this book of Haggai and finish it up, that your spirit would be with us as you have promised, that what we learn here would be an inspiration to us as we work to rebuild your temple and exalt your name upon the earth. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior and King. Amen. Let's conclude our series in Haggai by reading through the book of Haggai. We have four verses left to consider. I think it would be well to review and sort of get a running start. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Notice the expression, This people says, instead of my people. Now, theologically, in the book of Haggai, that's important because the people of God are defined by the house of God. They are a gathered community gathered around the throne of God, the people who come into the house of God. So, since the house of God is not rebuilt, this people has no definition. They can't become an organized community around the throne of God until the throne of God is set up in their midst. So at this point, it's simply this people. This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Remember, we get the picture here, God's house, and then organized around it all the houses of the people. Only that is not organized around the house of God now. It's in disarray. The culture, the civilization is disorganized because the center of the civilization has not been built. Once the house of the Lord is built, then all the people's houses will be built around it. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? They've been investing a lot of time and energy and expense in building nice houses for themselves, and yet, as we will read, their houses are not established. They are decorated, but they are not established. You have sown much, verse 6, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. Can't even forget your troubles. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. So, though your houses are decorated and ornate, they are not established. 
And the civilization cannot be established because the house of God is not established in their midst. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Go up to the mountain and bring wood. You might see a picture there of going up to the Garden of Eden, which was on a high plateau, and bringing wood from the trees to another location to build a house. There's usually uh, that kind of background in mountain terminology in the Bible. Mountains in the Bible are either the false gardens of Eden set up by the apostate, as we'll see a little bit later on, Zerubbabel is told not to worry about the mountains that oppose him because they'll be torn down. Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be tossed into the sea. Well, the mountain there is the Roman Empire. People think that it's talking about a real mountain, but it's not. This mountain will be tossed into the sea. The Roman Empire will dissolve back into the sea of humanity from which it arose. But go to the mountain. This is the positive mountain, the original mountain where the garden was, and bring the wood from that garden and rebuild the temple. Craig was telling us Wednesday night that the garden was the original temple. The temple had emblems of trees in it. That was where a man came into the midst of the garden to worship God, and then he would have gone out following the four rivers to do his work, and then on the Sabbath day come back to worship God. So the idea that the temple comes from the garden is not at all strange. Verse 9, You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So again, the general point, civilization is a bunch of houses organized around the house of God. They have been spending their time, wasting their time decorating their houses, but their houses are not established because their civilization is not established because every civilization is established on organized special worship. Verses 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared before the Lord. That means they engaged in special worship. That's what the expression feared before the Lord means. Before the Lord means before the place where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is gone forever by this point. No one's ever going to find it again. It's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. But there is some place where worship is conducted. And before the face of the Lord, the people gather and they showed fear. That is, they engaged in special worship, which is involved with fear. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord, Emmanuel, God in your midst. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. I've seen from the book of Haggai in general that the Spirit builds the house because God is Emmanuel. God is in their midst, and because he's in their midst, the Spirit is given to build the house. Once the people get their priorities straight and worship before the Lord and repent of their ways, then the Lord says, I am in your midst, and when I am in your midst, everything will form around me, and I will give the Spirit to you to help you build the house of God and flowing from that your civilization which proceeds out of the house of God.
So there's the first prophecy and the first model, the model of houses around the house of God, the Spirit and Emmanuel in their midst, building the temple and as a result building their civilization. Now chapter 2, we have the same thing said a different way. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, Emmanuel, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. So, again, the idea of building the temple, Emmanuel being with them, and thus the spirit being given to help them build it. Now, this time the model is of a bunch of tents. This is at the Feast of Tabernacles, remember? And so you have God's tabernacle in the center, and then all the people in their temporary tabernacles gathered around it. Again, the picture of civilization gathered around the throne of God. The house of God and then its replicas in all these individual houses which are gathered around it. The central thing, special worship. And then proceeding out from that, culture and civilization. Now the question is, how will the house be built? And the answer is that the nations of the world will be converted and will bring the wealth into the house. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, It is yet only a little while, and I am going to be shaking the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. And I will be shaking all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So, flowing out of the idea of the Feast of Tabernacles is the ingathering of the Gentiles. And there again we see it here. The house will be built and the wealth of all the nations will come to it. Then the next prophecy makes basically the same kind of point. Verses 10 to 19. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold or wing of his garment, and touches bread with his wing, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the prince answered and said, No, holiness does not spread in the Old Testament. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered and said, It will become unclean. Uncleanness, or death, does spread from person to person in the Old Covenant. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people and so is this nation. Still this people and this nation. A disorganized mass. So is this people and this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. But now consider from this day backwards. Before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one would come to a grain heap of twenty, and there would be only ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty, there would be only twenty. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, milled you in hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. But now consider from this day forward from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord began to be rebuilt. Consider, 
Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on I will bless you. Now here the model is of a corpse in the middle of a bunch of people which defiles everyone coming in contact with it. And the corpse is the temple. Again, you have the temple in the midst and the people. But because the temple is dead and still dead from being killed by Nebuchadnezzar and has not been brought back to life by being rebuilt, because it's still dead in their midst, it defiles everyone around it. So again, it cannot be my people because my people in the Bible are people who are resurrected from the dead. Always God's people are people who are resurrected from the dead. Now, it wasn't true of Adam originally. Adam was God's man before he had to be resurrected from the dead. But then Adam fell and God killed him. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The day Adam ate the fruit, he died. He continued to live, but he also died. He lived as a dead man, and he had to be resurrected and brought from death to life. Now all these people are still dead, so they can't be my people. They have to be this people. So there are a bunch of ceremonial corpses gathered around the corpse of the temple. But now the temple, when it's rebuilt, will be resurrected and brought to life again because God will once again be in its midst. And when that happens, all the people will be brought to life again as their culture is organized around the temple, the house of prayer. That is brought back to life. They will be brought back to life. Now, this, of course, is a picture of Jesus. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So when Jesus' temple is dead, Everything around him is unclean and dead. But then he is brought back to life, and all around him are brought back to life. And those who are gathered around the true temple, Jesus Christ, become his people because they're alive, and they're organized, and their culture is structured around the throne of God. So you see how the same message has been said three times using three different but similar analogies. We saw there's a lot more detail in this, but that's the general thing, and that pushes us right into this last prophecy, which if we didn't have that background, the last prophecy would just seem to be tacked on. But now the question comes, when is this temple really going to be rebuilt? What's all this really talking about? And the answer is it's really talking about the Messiah. When the Messiah comes... He will be of the house of David, and just as David built the temple, and then Solomon in the Davidic line or Davidic covenant, Solomon built the temple, and now Zerubbabel, who is the son of David, is building the temple. So the greater son of David to come, the Messiah, who will be the son of God, he will build the temple. That's what it's pointing to. And so it's always pointing to Emmanuel, God coming in their midst. And so it makes sense after you've talked about building the temple and building the temple and building the temple and how everything flows from that to end the book with a messianic prophecy of the one to come who will build the temple. Only he's going to build it once and for all. You see, it says, those of you who remember the earlier temple, do you see it now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing in comparison? The Old Testament temple would be built and then it'd be torn down and killed. And then God would have to bring it back to life again and bring the culture back to life. And then they would sin and they'd forget about God and God would kill the temple and they would all die. And then they would rebuild the temple and the temple would come back to life and they would come back to life. Then they would sin and God would kill the temple and they would all die. And this happened over and over again because the kingdom was not established on the earth once and for all. It was only provisional. And the provisional administration of the covenant it kept dying and having to be brought back to life again because it didn't have any life in itself. 
But now in Jesus Christ, he has life in himself. And so when Christ comes and builds the temple, it's built definitively and once and for all. It will not be torn down again. Now, the candlestick may be removed from one place or another place, but the temple itself will continue on the earth and not be torn down and have to be rebuilt again. So all of this, again, points to the inadequacy of the Old Covenant and the need for the temple to come and be built once and for all, forever, finally. So again, the final temple and the final Emmanuel in the midst of it who will sustain it forever. All of that comes here in verses 20 to 23, which is our topic this week. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So this is not addressed to the church or to the people. It's addressed to the Davidic line, the king. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet, for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. Now, you'll remember from the first part of chapter 2 in verse 6, it says, It is yet only a little while, and I am going to start to shake and continue to shake the heavens and the earth, and I'm going to shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the nations. Now, if you heard that prophecy, you might get kind of nervous. You might think, well, if all the nations of the world are going to be shaken down, well, what's going to happen to us? If armies are going to be on the march... Armies have a way of kind of going through Palestine. You see, Palestine was right in the middle of the world. If you wanted to go from Europe to Africa, you had to go through Palestine. And if you wanted to bring an army from Asia to Africa, you had to go through Palestine. If you wanted to take an army from Europe to Asia, there were all these big, heavy mountains up here, and so you had to kind of come down through Palestine. So it was the crossroads of the world, and that's why God put his people there, so they could minister to all the caravans as they went through. But if all these nations are going to be at war with one another, and you know from the book of Daniel that it's going to be the king of the north coming down against the king of the south and the king of the south going up against the king of the north, you know that the battlefield is going to be Palestine, and it makes you kind of nervous. How is the house of God going to be built if it's going to be a continual time of war? This is not an altogether irrelevant question for us today. Well, so Zerubbabel is concerned as the leader of the army and of the state. And so the message comes to him the same day. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Don't worry about that, Zerubbabel. It's going to happen. And I'm going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. You know from the book of Daniel that all of these kingdoms are going to come, and Daniel was concerned and upset when he saw how God was going to deal with these nations and how bad it was going to be. Well, he says, I am. All of this is going to tend to one thing, that I'm going to overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. In other words, this is our old friend, the gingham dog and calico cat principle, where the wicked destroy each other. This wicked man wants to be God, and this wicked man wants to be God, and there's just not room for two gods, because for this guy to be God, this guy has to submit. But for this guy to be God, this guy has to submit. 
So the wicked always fight each other, and they always kill each other off. One of the basic principles in the Bible, that the wicked kill each other off. So he says that's going to happen. But he says, you really don't need to worry about that, Zerubbabel, because I am going to make you like a signet. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, now what's that mean? Well, what's a signet? Well, some of you know, a signet in the Old Testament was a round cylinder. You can imagine that this would be a cylinder. And down at the end of it was a round circle with the name of an important person engraved on it. And to make a document official or to seal a document, you put a glob of wax and you took that cylinder and you punched it down onto the wax and then you drew it up and there would be the impress of the seal on the wax. You could also have a signet ring. I don't have one, but a signet ring would be a large ring. And we have little model signet rings that men wear nowadays, but they were big back in those days, and people didn't really wear them except to make the official act. And they would have one of these big round things on them with some symbol or their name engraved on it, and they would use the same trick to push it onto the wax and thus seal a document. Sometimes a document would be folded up and sealed to make it official. Now, this made it official. This made it the word of the king. That's what the signet did. Now, if I was a king and I gave my signet ring to somebody else, then he could write an order up and sign it with the signet, and it would be just as if I had done it. Let's say that somebody stole my signet ring. Then they wrote up an order saying, let's put all the Jews to death and they sealed it with my signet ring. Well, anybody seeing that would think that that order had come from me, who am the king, because my signet ring had been stolen. If I give my signet ring to someone else and say, you have the power to use the signet ring, I am giving that person all the power that I as the king have. Because any decree he chooses to send out, he can make official by stamping the seal of the king upon it. Well, let's look at a couple of places in the Bible where we find that. Genesis 41. In Genesis 41, verse 42. Starting in verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck and had him ride in the second chariot and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. So now Joseph has all the power that Pharaoh has. Of course, it's given him by Pharaoh, so Pharaoh has the ultimate power. But Joseph can do more or less anything he wants. Now, in the book of Esther, we see the same thing. So if you'll flip forward to Esther. In Esther chapter 3, you'll see the power of the man who has the signet ring. Starting in verse 7, In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, poor, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. 
and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, men and women, on one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize all their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. You see the power of the signet ring. It might as well have been written by the king himself. But now in the book of Esther, Haman doesn't get to keep the signet ring. Eventually Mordecai gets it. We see that in chapter 8. You remember the story of Esther. Chapter 8 of Esther and verse 2. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And then in verse 8, Ahasuerus says to Mordecai, Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews. The satraps, governors, and princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province according to its script, to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. So, uh, everything proceeds from the throne. And the man who has the signet ring has all the power of the king himself. Now, this makes Zerubbabel, the man who has the signet ring, a type of Jesus Christ. Now, all of the kings of Israel in the Davidic line, or kings of Judah, are seen as being signet rings in the hand of God. And we see this in Jeremiah 22, verse 24, which is the only other cross-reference we'll have. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. And this is right at the end of the period of the monarchy, just before Nebuchadnezzar is brought in to destroy the nation. And God is rejecting Jeconiah from being king. And he says in verse 24, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull it off from there. So, let's get the picture. David is the one who builds the house of God. And David is a type of the Messiah, his son in particular. And all the kings of Judah were the sons of David. And they are like a signet ring on the hand of God. They are kings over his people. So they point to Jesus Christ, who has all the power of the Father. Jesus Christ holds the signet ring which belongs to the Father. So Jesus is like 
the signet ring itself. And he has all the power to make and dispose things. And Zerubbabel is said to have that power, not in an absolute sense that a fallen or sinful man could, in the Old Testament, have all power like a pope, but that he signifies Jesus Christ who is to come. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. The term chosen you points to the Davidic covenant, the choosing of the Davidic line. Now what this means to Zerubbabel is that Zerubbabel will indeed build the temple, and he doesn't need to worry about the opposition from the kingdoms of the world. God is going to shake the nations, but uh, his kingdom will be built, and his temple or house will be built. And we can turn over a couple of pages to Zechariah 4 and see the same thing said to Zerubbabel just a couple of months later by the prophet Zechariah. Verse 6 of Zechariah 4 then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, that the spirit will build the house. What are you, O great mountain? That is, the empires of the world. Before Zerubbabel, a plain. And he will bring forth the top stone of the temple with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have started rebuilding this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven, that is, the eyes of the Lord, will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, these even the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Plumb line. Well, if you're building a building... In order to get the wall straight, you have a line with a weight on it. And that's put up against a wall to make sure the wall is not leaning one way or another. And so building the house, one of the tools used is a plumb line. And the idea is that God will rejoice when Zerubbabel rebuilds the house. Now that, again, is ultimately a reference to Jesus Christ who would come and rebuild the house. John 2.19 destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up, he said, referring to himself. Now, there's one other thing to keep in mind about all this. We've seen in the three earlier prophecies in Haggai that the temple in the midst reproduces itself among the people. The first prophecy, the temple has no foundation. Therefore, your houses have no foundation, and I keep blowing them down. Your culture is not established. Second prophecy, the house has no foundation, but it's going to be rebuilt, and when it is rebuilt, then you will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles because your houses will have a foundation too. What is true of the temple is reproduced among God's people. The third prophecy, this temple is like a corpse, and therefore you people are all dead. But when the temple is brought back to life again, you people will come back to life again. As goes the temple, so goes the people. Now, the reference to the signet ring says the same thing a different way. It doesn't say, I will give you my signet ring. Now, it's implied, and I have expounded it that way up till now. But it doesn't actually say that. It actually says, in verse 23, I will make you like a signet ring. Now, what's on the signet ring? Well, on the signet ring is a name or a symbol of the king. And you push that into wax. 
and the signet reproduces its form in the wax. In Greek, the word for that is typos, which is where we get typology from. We've talked about that in here before. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is a model and it's pushing itself down on the earth. And the earth will reproduce that model. Now, Zerubbabel is like the ring, pushing into the wax and reproducing his image. So what's the wax? Well, that's all the people around him. Just as the temple reproduces its image in all the houses, just as the tabernacle reproduces its image in the tabernacles of the Feast of Booths, so the greater Zerubbabel will be pressed onto his people and reproduce his image in them. Now, that's what salvation is, for us to be in Christ and for his image to be impressed upon us so that we reproduce his life. So that's the teaching of the book of Haggai, that the building of the temple is central to the rebuilding of civilization, considered several different ways, finally considered as the impress of the righteous Messiah upon his people so that they become like him. He will be like a signet ring and he will impress himself upon the people. And generally speaking, as we've said all along, the message of Haggai is that the center of the kingdom of God is organized special public acts of worship before the throne of God. Now this point is completely lost in American fundamentalism. Worship is regarded as a voluntary exercise. People come together to give something to God, to praise God according to uh, what they think ought to be done. Now, it's not that that's so terrible in and of itself, but by itself, it's bad. It's will worship. Worship is not a voluntary exercise of coming to praise God. Worship is a command performance demanded by the King of Kings according to a structure that he himself has set out. We come to that objective structure and we participate in it. It's not that we come up with something to give to God, but we participate in what God himself has said he wants. Now, that's not to say that the Bible gives us explicit rules for the order of worship any more than under the New Covenant we're given explicit rules on what the house of God is to look like when it's built. And, of course, during the Old Testament time, the house of God looked differently at different times. The tabernacle and the temple had a lot of similarities, but they didn't look alike. There was this little laver in the tabernacle. When the temple was built, there was this great big huge laver mounted on 12 oxen. And it was called a sea. It was so big that it was called an ocean instead of called a bowl or a laver with water in it. Well, there are a lot of dissimilarities as well. And in Ezekiel's temple, as we've seen, that thing is turned on its side and all the water flows out. So there is an essential pattern in our diversities. But the general conception of worship that we must have, and that we're trying to get more and more in our church, Sunday morning and now Sunday night as well, is to have a structured, objective, command performance view of worship that we come and participate in. Because that will discipline our lives so that what we do in the center of the kingdom is reproduced and disciplined in our lives in general. And as the house of God is built, so the houses of men are built. Now, one of the things that happens to people when they become theonomists, I think, and they come to be aware that there's such a thing as a cultural mandate, is that that becomes something in and of itself. So we get concerned about Christian politics or Christian economics or Christian art, and those things tend to become things in themselves. Well, how do you build a kingdom of God? Well, we've got to have a Christian political party, and then a Christian newspaper, and Christian 
university, and so forth and so on. Well, we do need these things. But simply setting up these things without getting worship reorganized and structured and objectified will not work. So what we have in Calvinism today is pietists whose view of worship is uh, let's get an emotional experience and have a revival, which is not biblical. And then Kuyperians, whose view of reforming society is let's just go out and get involved and do all these things. What's lacking in both of these groups is an appreciation of the discipline of public, corporate, objective worship that the revivalist doesn't see and the cultural mandate, the person who's overly involved in that doesn't see. Now, both of these groups are right to a certain extent. We do want heart participation in God's objective worship. And the, what we do in worship does need to flow out and change the world. But you can get the cart before the horse. These people have gotten the cart before the horse. And that's a danger we have and we must not fall into. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.